Domestic Great Approach, Episode 9, Surgical Selection Interviews. Welcome to another edition of The Retrograde Approach. I'm your host, Sam Farah, and I'm joined by my friend, your friend, everyone's friend, Dr. Yogi Sansivakumar and Yogi. Good evening, Sam. I didn't know that I had that many friends. That's that's incredible. Everyone's friend. That's uh, We're going to have to go and figure that one out. I want, I, want pr- I want evidence of that. Yogi, the day I meet someone who doesn't like you, I'll be very surprised. <laughs> so, Yogi, this is a special episode. We've got uh, our first official guest on the podcast, Dr. Tom Lovelock, who's a first-year vascular trainee at uh, Royal Hobart Hospital to talk to us about his process for preparation for the selection interview for vascular training and share with us some insights from his uh, preparation and ultimately his success. Yeah, look, I think um, it's a fantastic um achievement when you're able to transition from an unaccredited role to a formal training position it's a reflection of the effort that you've put into not only improving your overall um, curriculum vitae but also your professional and clinical skills in um, the reflection that your uh, mentors and colleagues have in regards to you so I think it's an enormous stress and we're very fortunate that Tom has given us a few minutes of his time tonight to talk through some of that. But um, look, Sam, I think fundamentally um, the the principle of selection um, for surgical training programs is really a reflection of the fact that the College of Vascular Surgery is a professional college and really um, the onus comes back to us as surgeons within the college Um to be involved in the process of selecting people who best reflect the ethos of the college itself. Um, and this, this is why the process of surgical training is so difficult. Um, it's, um, it is a highly competitive process which embarks upon the various facets of not only your personal but also your interpersonal skills um, and furthermore, a demonstration of that not only through tangible activities but also through the interview itself and so sam whilst the process of vascular surgical training has changed since you and i applied to get on um, in the middle ages um, the more current vascular trainee um, embarks upon a three-structured approach to apply for vascular training uh, this includes the, the curriculum vitae, which has various aspects, but includes, uh, which is a points-based curriculum vitae uh, that takes into account the terms that they've completed, research presentations, extracurricular activities, and also higher degrees as sort of the broad topics of um, points, but also takes into account referee reports um, and since you and I have gone through these reports come from members or surgical members and also no, and also non-medical team members who may have supervised the potential candidate 
through their terms in their junior years of training. But finally, the interview, which also plays a significant role in the selection of the candidate. Um, And this is where, which is also a very big stumbling block for a lot of junior registrars as they take their next step forward. Yeah, so uh, I think you and I are both uh, very appreciative of um, Tom coming on and sharing some of his insights. Ultimately, uh, I believe Tom got on first try and um, uh, prepared extensively for the interview itself. And uh, I think he's got some uh, great insights from that process to share with us today. Uh, Thank you for having me, uh, Dr. Shaw. Thank you very much for joining us. I I think... um, we were very fortunate to have you because uh, Sam and I are a bunch of old farts and have completely forgotten the process of selection to get onto vascular training. It's definitely changed since the two of us have gone through, but um, it'd be a nice place to start by just asking you about your preparation in the lead up to the vascular set interview. How did you get yourself into the right mindset? And then what did you actually do to prepare? Yeah, so I guess um, I hadn't really ever done a whole lot of significant interview preparation kind of prior to this. I did, you know, obviously a little bit for jobs every single year, but this was kind of the first time that I did anything kind of on a, you know, solid basis. And I started, I had a couple of books that people recommended to me, both of which I think are really more for, for general surgery trainees. And I think they're kind of commonly read by most people trying to sit the interview. One was um, the ultimate set guide to uh, the general surgery interviews, which I think is written by a, a previous Sydney trainee um, and just kind of covers a wide range of scenarios. And the other one was a, a um, guide to, I think it's a UK book, it's the guide to um, uh, their equivalent of, of set um, training interviews. And I read that mainly just to get my head around all the different kinds of scenarios that could be asked and um I think it doesn't entirely apply to vascular in that sometimes the question formats are not exactly identical. I think that, you know, it covers a lot of the things that you're going to come across in the interview process. So, you know, you're underperforming or your colleagues underperforming or your consultants drunk or that kind of stuff. And it gives you a framework to work around all of those things. Um, And so, you know, both of the books kind of went into detail about, you know, specific formats for answering questions and ways to structure your answers, but also, you know, sometimes I'd come across a question, I'd be like, oh, I just wouldn't know what I would say to that. And they've got a model answer or, you know, specific things that they talked about. And, um, you know, you could pick and choose bits that I liked from that. So that was kind of my first bit. And I probably started that maybe five or six months prior to the interview. Um, and that, you know, I did it kind of slowly in my, in my spare time in addition to working. So, that, you know, reading all those books and stuff probably took me six, six weeks to eight weeks or so. And then, um, the next phase that I went on to was just trying to do as many questions as possible. Um, and one thing I found was that I, I can't do interview practice by myself. I can't sit in a room and talk to myself in the mirror. It doesn't work for me. So um, I had a good mate who was applying for general surgery and we used to catch up on Zoom uh, two or three times a week and we kind of pre-agree. I think we said generally we'd ask each other four or five questions. And at the start, we actually started sending each other questions before the session. So I'd say these are the four questions I'm going to ask you. Um, And then as time went on, um, we just started asking each other blind questions, kind of with, you know, a bit of... um, And then we had a question bank. So, you know, every time we did specific questions, then we would add them to the bank and 
and to start every session, we'd take a few questions from the bank and go through them. And, you know, I think it was particularly good because he knew what my weaknesses were or, you know, he'd remember that I didn't answer it or I was a bit stuck answering a question a couple of weeks earlier and he'd try and fling it at me in an inopportune time to see um, how I'd answer it and, and vice versa. So I found that really helpful. Um, other specific things I did, I went through the College of Surgeons website and read all of their position statements. Um, and I think that's really important when you're going to sit, you know, a College of Surgeons interview, you should know what all their position statements are on specific things. Um, there's a lot of kind of, you know, weird and wonderful position statements that, that um, you know, you don't think of things like, you know, introducing new technology and um, other things that you probably wouldn't come across without reading about it that do come up not only in the interview, but I think also, you know, that was in the fellowship exam last year. So those kind of things are important to read. Um, and then I think finally uh, I tried to move a little bit more towards a vascular focus. And so then I did a bit of um, interview practice probably in the fortnight to a month prior with, um, you know, my set one, uh, another local set one, um, uh, set five and, and a few other kind of vascular centered people just to get it more kind of refined to a, a vascular technique. Um, so now I think about it in hindsight, it was all a bit of work at the time. It didn't really seem like that much, but yeah, that was kind of my process in a nutshell. And so you're, you're absolutely right, Tom. It sounds like you, you spent a lot of time, first of all, getting some of the fundamental foundations in place with the knowledge base and then actually trying to apply that. But sort of on average, were you spending a couple of hours a night after work to get through all that? Or what would you, was it was it more a weekend thing or how did you try and roster, sort of timetable yourself? Yeah, so I, I tried maybe for an hour or two, a couple of nights during the week and then maybe a couple of hours on the weekend in addition to this. I've, I've had a couple of friends, one of my friends got onto orthopedics and a couple of my other friends got onto obstetrics and now, my friend that got onto orthopedics made a really interesting point. He goes, you know, if you look at all of the surgical training programs in general and their application process, um, you know, there's all kind of variations on a theme, but it tends to be that the CV is about 30%, your references are about 30%, the interview is 40%. And when you consider that, you know, most people would spend in the vicinity of 100 hours trying to get their CV down, but, but nobody seems to spend that time on the interview when actually it's the most important part. It's worth the most points and it's the part that ultimately determines whether you get on or not. Um, and so I think that, you know, it, it probably, uh, I mean, I in the end did spend up, you know, quite a bit of time practicing for it, but I think that it's something that you do need to put time in. And I, I certainly think that my interview performance was better for going through and, and getting all that knowledge. And also I felt really confident on the day because I knew that I had read you know, every single thing that I could have read. And, you know, even if something came out of left field, I probably had enough to answer it or I'd, I'd put myself under the, in those positions in practice where I felt comfortable answering questions where you, you sit down and you go, God, I don't know what I'm going to say. Um, so I think that that is, that's useful. So I think you, you really can't over-prepare to some extent. You, you need to really put in the work to, to get through the interview. I think that that's valuable advice. I think that you really do need to split your time well across the three components of set application. And uh, I think, you know, the time spent in terms of preparing for the interview, like like Tom says, really starts months and months ahead of schedule, um, really as you're sort of getting the lead in to build the skill set and build the structures to the sort of questions you'll encounter. And you're right, you're not going to be able to prepare for everything, but 
I think understanding how you would approach each of these individual dilemmas during the interviews is the way to do it. I think the other thing that I liked, Tom, was really you got to a point where you were confident in yourself that you could back yourself with a question when phased with it. And that only comes with time. Uh, You can't do that with a, a couple of weeks of preparation. This is a long period of preparation to get yourself to that point. Yeah. So I think I think that's a valuable point, Sam. Yeah, I think the um, what I really like there, Tom, is um, you kind of said you you sort of had your process so down pat that you're you're comfortable getting an uncomfortable question. Like you sort of were mentally prepared for getting something um, that you were unfamiliar with, and you sort of had a, a way of dealing with it, which I thought was really good. So I guess the other thing I wanted to ask you, you know, if you if you only had um, a week to prepare, what do you think you would actually do out of all, all that? I guess what I'm really asking you in a very convoluted way is what, what out of all those things do you think was the most bang for buck or high value um, preparation technique? Uh, I think it's going through the questions because, you know, as much as the background knowledge is good and I think it's very important to have that and so I'm not recommending preparing a week out, I think nothing is a substitute for just sitting down, you know, with somebody that you, you trust and just asking each other questions for an hour, like you're, you're doing mock interviews. And so I think for me, you know, the background stuff you did because I had a bit of, well, because I had extra time and I prepared ahead of, of time for that. But I think, um, you know, the, the thing of just sitting down and also that simulates the position of, you know, getting a question where you don't know what you're going to say. And the, the reality is, is that coming into the interview, even if you kind of have seen, you know, a variation of the question before, you're never going to have seen that exact question. And so I think it's that ability to kind of start thinking on your feet. And I, I could tell as time went on, I got better at that. And it was a skill that you kind of have to develop. And the only way you can develop it is by putting yourself in that position and continuing to practice questions. So um, that, was, that was something that I found helpful. Did you um did you actually get questions that you had prepared for that um that you had sort of made up yourself for um before the actual real interview? Uh, like, did I have questions that I had made myself, or what? What do you mean? Yeah. So, did you like um did did you sort of come up with a uh you know a, a question that you in your own practice from that your own bank, and then did that did that actually turn up in the real interview? Well, the the real interview is a bit different for vascular. So um, in terms of, you know, vascular is very scenario-based. And so what I found with the the vascular interview is what they would do is kind of, it's a bit different from the general surgery interview. The general surgery interview, having never said it, but from what I understand is, you know, your consultant is drunk, what do you do? Or, um, you know, your colleague is underperforming, what do you do? Vascular seems to take a scenario put about three of those things into it. So, you know, the patient's incompetent and your consultant's drunk and you don't have the EVA equipment around um, and put it all into a, a reasonably long stem that's kind of hard to read and then just kind of ask you to elaborate on things. And so I think, um, you know, there were certainly elements of things that I already knew. So, you know, if you'd asked me the week before the interview, you've got a drunk consultant, I would literally just spurt things at you for four or five minutes because I was all over it. Um, but I think a bit of the skill of the vascular interview and getting to the next stage is the ability to synthesise what the key issues in the vascular stem are. So picking out what those three key issues are 
then, you know, hitting each one on the head. And then obviously I think, you know, because generally everyone that sits the interview is, is generally very good. I think you need to have, you know, the beyond the basic answer. So, you know, nobody in their right mind who's sitting the interview is going to let their drunk consultant do an open AAA repair and everyone's going to do graded escalation and everyone's going to, you know, make sure that the patient's safe. But I think that there are a few extra things that kind of people referred to me as the cherry on top things that, that you can kind of say that make you kind of stand out or that is something that not everyone said and that's where you kind of distinguish yourself from the crowd. Um, and so, you know, in that instance, one of the things that I think somebody talked about is, um, you know, checking in with a consultant a week or two later. I mean, obviously this is a, you know, it's a huge thing if you're if you go into work pissed and you know you get told that you can't operate and and sent home that's you you know a really big thing and so you know following up with your colleagues and making sure that they're okay down the track is probably something that in the stress of an interview you don't think about because you're so focused on getting out there you know making sure the patient's safe graded escalation getting consultant out of the room but I think that you know once you've got those things down then it's kind of on autopilot for you because you've done those questions so many times then you can focus a little bit on the extra stuff as well that that then kind of makes your answer stand out a bit more yeah in, in two ways it's sort of humanizing the problem and trying to actually relate to the fact of what you would actually do in the real world but also i think perhaps it's demonstrating your maturity well the candidates who go through the process really need to demonstrate their maturity as not only just a potential candidate but really a potential set one and so a reflection of your day job and reflection of the fact that this is what you do day in day out right so um, you really step your I guess Tom's summary of that is really to put yourself in the shoe of a trainee and sort of pick apart the question so that you're answering it in in that in that form because you're trying to demonstrate the fact that you're ready to take that leap forward um because at the end of the day, Sam, you and I both know, you know, some registrars um, find that process of synthesis and putting things together difficult. And um, I guess it's, it's, you know, our role to try and guide and navigate people through that. But um, it's hard often in that circumstance to distinguish and distinguish them from, say, when they were a resident or a medical student, because it's just information gathering. What we want to, I guess, what the, the, the board wants to see is people who are progressing to what we, you and I used to talk a lot about prior to our fellowship exam, sort of advanced level thinking where you're sort of trying to demonstrate an understanding of the problem. Yeah. I think, um, you know, one thing I was always worried about before I did the interview was sounding too rehearsed, you know, you know, sound almost robotic in a way, but I think um, once you do sort of reach that higher level of thinking, it doesn't sound rehearsed because it actually sounds real in a way. So I think, you know, Tom sort of reached that point where the more he sort of spoke about it and added those sort of cherry on tops to the scenarios, it really sort of turned it from something rehearsed into something quite, quite real. And I think as the interviewer, I've never been an interviewer, but I imagine, you know, you'll get sort of two types of candidates, people who sound like they've actually done it. And then people who sound like they're just reading out of that book, you know? So, um, I don't know, as Tom was sort of relaying all that stuff to me about, you know, checking in and all that sort of stuff. So, well, maybe he has seen a, you know, a piss consultant at work. You never know. So, um, uh, Tom, in the, in the lead up to interviews, most people um, find that their anxiety um, increases much like just before a ruptured aneurysm. Um, your adrenaline's pumping and you're just feeling like you, you know, all, you're all guns blazing. But um, I think part of performing in an interview is 
balancing that adrenaline with your anxiety and um and trying to figure out how to best do that and i think that for me really starts the day prior but i'd be interested in your sort of what was your approach in the lead up to the interview especially now that we do these interviews or now that the structure of these interviews have changed and we'll talk about this in a second that they've gone from face to face to over zoom how did you get yourself into the right frame of mind in the lead up to the interview yeah, I think um, I've always been one of the, I've I've never been a very good crammer, and so you know the week before I felt that I had really done the work. I'd done you know a lot of stuff, and I had you know two or three questions that I wanted to go over that I knew that were my kind of weak areas, and so I'd have a look at them. But otherwise, you know, I tried to really just chill out, make sure I had enough sleep. Um, I think the night before the interview, I played FIFA with my brother for a few hours just to kind of chill out and do something else um and then obviously you know we go to bed at a good hour and get up the next day make sure you get up with plenty of time so that you've got time to you know get ready make sure you've got good I don't know for me breakfast is important so I had a good breakfast had a coffee um got dressed made sure that there's like weirder considerations with the zoom thing you're like oh I've got to clean my room make sure that like my room background looks okay for this zoom meeting um, you know, pick out your suit, all those kind of things. So, um, you know, I just kind of focused on all that kind of stuff. And I guess, you know, by that time I felt like, you know, the work had been done and and it was just an opportunity to kind of, you know, put everything I'd been working on into practice. And um, in some ways it's kind of nice because it's a bit of a challenge. You're like, oh, well, let's see, like, you know, what what the questions are going to be. Let's see what what comes at me kind of thing. And I guess... You know, I was fortunate in that it was the first time I sat the interview, so I felt, you know, if I if I didn't get on or, or whatever happened, then you know I'd always have another go the next year. And and I'd, I'd fortunately, because the um, interviews were late last year because of COVID, I'd already got a, a good unaccredited job lined up uh, for the following year. And so I felt, you know, well, if I don't get on, I've given myself as good a chance as I can have, and and I get to go do twelve months more work and get more experience, and I come back bigger and better the next year and if, if I do get on then that's great and so I guess that's what my approach was and um fortunately I guess I seem to do okay on the interview yeah I mean I think uh, I think your mindset really and like you like you had spoken about earlier you had got got yourself to a point where you were confident in your abilities and you sort of had a good approach to I guess what you demonstrated there is resilience to the idea that whatever comes you were willing to sort of deal with and I think that's an important take-home message especially as you go into the interview that you really do need to be able to not only think about how what strategies you've got to deal with the various potential outcomes that can occur but also your support your support structure that's around you and for Tom having someone to sort of decompress the night before I think is is absolutely um, you know a, a fantastic opportunity for him just to get away from that period of time. Um, and then Tom, on the day of the interview, are you sent a link? Are you sent the link the day prior, a week prior? How do you actually know what you're joining into and so forth? I can't exactly remember. I think they sent us a link uh, maybe a week or two prior, and there's a time. Um, yeah. So I think they say, you know, that I presume that everyone kind of goes in in a staggered fashion or something or they do runs of of people. Um, obviously, I mean, it, you should turn up 
prior. So I think I joined the meeting kind of 20 minutes before I was meant to be there. And then you just kind of sit in the Zoom waiting room in your room, twiddling your thumbs, thinking this is ridiculous. Um, I think that they did something where they wanted to make sure that, you know, you weren't cheating or something. So, you know, I mean, I think that, you know, if you've got, if you're needing to cheat by that stage, then um, you're probably a bit beyond it anyway. But um, uh, so I think that they, they wanted to see all of your background and make sure that everything was okay, which I guess makes sense. And then um, just went on with the interview from there, I guess, as you would um, if you weren't there. The one thing that I, I found interesting um, I was fortunate in that I, my friend who I was doing interview practice with, who was a good mate of mine from internship, lived in New South Wales. We'd done a lot of practice on Zoom. Um, but I think it's worthwhile if you're not doing practice on Zoom to do a bit of Zoom practice before the interviews. I don't, I don't know if they've decided or if they are going to be on Zoom this year, but if they are on Zoom, I would recommend that because I think one thing I found is that um, it's very hard to actually make proper eye contact on Zoom. Yeah. And so I, I would find that I would be staring at the screen and it kind of looks, it, it's probably a subconscious thing, but I think that the ability to actually look people in the eye would make a big difference. And I think particularly because if you do look at the screen, you're not really looking at the camera and it doesn't look like you're making eye contact. Um, and I think subconsciously that probably like that kind of nonverbal type mm. stuff actually is almost more important in Zoom than it is in real life because it's really hard to do properly and it takes a lot of practice to actually look at the camera and not look at the screen um so that was something i actually did spend a bit of time thinking about because um you know ultimately it's it's an interview and you know there's all those studies that show that so much of that is non-verbal stuff and and i guess the zoom interview is a bit unnavigated for people so i think it's worthwhile you know if you're not doing zoom interview practice to do a couple of sessions on zoom with somebody and just get somebody on the other end having a look at you and seeing what you look like I think the, all very all very fair uh, sort of uh, comments in regards to preparing yourself for what is really a novel way of interviewing people for for best, for surgical training, um, mm. and 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 whilst I think the non-verbal aspects of communication are, are important, I think one of the more difficult things on Zoom is you can sound reason, reasonably monotone all the way through as well, mm. uh, and and I guess it's very easy to sound like you're delivering a lecture. Um, you know, often when Sam and I talk or when we were preparing for our fellowship, Sam was all, often always just lecturing me directly, which was always putting me off to sleep occasionally. But um, I guess what, I guess the other aspect you know of it was... the fellowship <laughs> exam, everyone fell asleep and they, yeah. they couldn't fail him. He just, he just strolled in and strolled out. That's the, that's yeah. the version I got told. <laughs> um, but but, but um, I guess being able to vary your your tone and I guess try and enunciate things that you think are really important probably also play a big role with Zoom because I think it's very hard to stress to the interviewer emotion I think over Zoom would that be a fair comment? Yeah I remember when I was preparing um, several people said this to me but I think it stuck with me Anastasia Dean just said you're good but slow down and because, you know, obviously in an interview situation, you're so stressed and I speak fast at the best of times. Um, and I think that, you know, if you slow down and you go, you know, there's no rush, just slow down, then you do tend to enunciate things better and, and you find that you, you actually do express things better. Whereas if you're trying to just rattle off at a million miles a minute because you want to get every single point out, then then you probably do become monotone. And so 
for me, it wasn't so much enunciation or emotion. It was just slowing down and then everything else came with that. Yeah. Um, and so that was something that probably actually on the day of the interview I was thinking about because I know that people had said to me when I was practising, you know, all the content's there, but you just, you talk too fast, slow down. Um, and I'm sure there are you know, lots of other people like me, but I think if you slow down, then then you just start talking normally as opposed to being a, a you know, psychopathic unaccredited registrar is trying to spill out every single point before the eight minute or whatever it is buzzer goes yeah uh, look i think um that's fantastic advice and i think a credit to anastasia for pointing that out to you and i think that probably redirected your your approach in in sort of mm. approaching the the interview question so i think um you know mentors and people who are willing to give you the time to listen to you respond to exam or interview questions is really important and um i i can't stress that enough to those out there who are in the process of preparing for the interview find someone that's willing to give you the time to listen but also spend the time to practice with colleagues um because that's where you're going to get the most bang for your buck I just find it interesting, Yogi, that, uh, you know, Tom uh, had his colleague in New South Wales who he practiced a lot with, and we sort of actually did the same thing when it came to our exam prep. You know, you just find uh, you find a, find a buddy and um, you both make each other better. So, yeah, look, and, and, and you know, in, in the lead-up to our fellowship exam, I, you know, the, the things that I learned from you and hopefully the things you learned from me whilst scarce was... Um, was really about the things that we did individually within our units um, and also just the things that you pick up from observing other people interacting in exam situations. I think it's similar with interviews. You sort of, you're under the pump, um, so you really want to try and figure out what your weaknesses are. I think it's good for picking up stylistic things. Like every once in a while I'd hear somebody answer a question and be like, oh, I really like that. And then I'd just kind of plagiarize it and take it for my own and you oh you know they add this point onto this I really like that I'm going to add that into my thing and then you kind of blend a whole lot of other people's like the more people that you can practice with the more bits and pieces that you really like from other people that you can take and use as your own and you know then you're using the best of you but also probably the best of six or seven other people that you practice with and that turns your answer into a, a really strong answer. It's funny Tom once you come to sit the fellowship you, you really do the same thing again you um it's exactly the same to be honest like you you just hear everyone else's answer you go oh I like that and you basically plagiarize it yeah and then when you and then when you start you know when you got your name mm. on the end of the bed and you start operating and you start doing things that are a little bit sort of mm, why did you do that well i like this that someone that i once worked with did it this way and i've really liked that and stuck with me and it's funny how i actually don't think of it as plagiarizing but i think it's you you're really taking the best out of everyone in terms of upskilling yourself and you know most things are done similarly especially whether it's interview practice exam practice or whether it's operative or clinical but i guess you everyone's got a little sort of spin on it and um if like like tom like tom said it's it's the stylistic things that sort of help differentiate you from just the stock standard um sort of candidate which i think is what's important here uh so tom just tell us about the uh interview on the day, I know you mentioned obviously that it was yep. on Zoom and uh, you started in the waiting room, but uh, how many stations were there and how was it sort of structured? Uh, yeah, so um, forgive me for my memory of this all. I've tried to black this stressful period of my life out, but uh, <laughs> yep. I believe it was, I think it was six questions and I think they're about 
I think it was eight minutes to answer the question, two minutes reading time, but don't quote me on that. I think they give you information um, uh, like in the couple of weeks prior to the interview on the exact timing. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I remember on Zoom, and this is something that I wish I'd practised um, because they send you the Zoom question. If it is on Zoom, they send you it in like the chat box of Zoom. Um, and I found right. it really hard for some reason. I couldn't read it and scrolling. It was quite difficult. And the stems tend to be quite long. Um, and so something yeah. I would recommend for anyone sitting it is to practice that with somebody sending you and reading the stem in the chat section. Obviously, I'd practice just verbally. And so we'd ask each other the question as opposed to kind of having it written down. Um, yep. And all of the questions, the stems were all quite long. And so it did really take almost two minutes to read it and process it. And so I think, you know, being able to access that even, like I think I had to drag like where the text was coming was from like the bottom of my screen to the side of my screen so I could see it. Um, so obviously, you know, that's something that you could optimise or, or think about. And that was something that I found a bit tricky with the Zoom interview format that I presume, you know, in a face-to-face, you probably just get a piece of paper. Um the only other thing is, is that I think it stays there for the duration of the question. So, like, if, you, if you're still answering something and you go, oh, I don't know what else to say, like, you could always go back to the STEM, um, which would be yep. you know, a helpful thing if you ran out of things to say. I think, um, so I guess we're not really sure if it's going to be on Zoom this year or face-to-face, but um, I think, Yogi, when we said it, um, it was on a piece of paper outside on the door. And then you could also reread it inside on the, they had another copy of it inside. Is that, does that ring a bell? Yeah. And, and it was, it was literally like playing musical chairs. You were in a little um, sort of conference center of the hotel and um, you, you, you um, got to sit in front of a chair with the question on the door you, you read it for a, a two minutes, you walked in, the interview asked you whether you wanted to reread the question or you understood the question, then you sort of kicked off. Um, and so the during the face-to-face interviews, there was definitely no appreciation of time and how much time you had spent answering the question. But over Zoom, was there any, um, was there a timer or was there a clock that you had access to that you could see, you know, how much time you'd spent? I don't think so. Um, I think it's some some of them. They no. I don't, I don't think so. Maybe for the the um, reading time, there was some sort of countdown clock, but I don't think there was for the main question from memory. But you could see the. Um, could you see the clock on your computer? Yeah, you could see the clock on your computer. But the thing is, is that you're so stressed, you know, trying to read the questions. And the thing is, is that as soon as you. Uh, station you go to the next station and you're waiting for the stem to come through or whatever um that uh, i found that you didn't really think much about the time the interview goes went quite quickly for me because you're spending the whole time kind of thinking um which as you know is is a rarity for me i remember um the 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 first 30 seconds of the first question is usually spent thinking holy shit this is actually the real interview this is the actual question and you don't actually absorb any of it. You have to reread it about four times. And then just broadly speaking, Tom, I know it's very, uh, you know, we all like to remove certain memories from our life and usually they're associated with some form of PTSD, especially when it comes to an exam or in- interview. But just broadly speaking, 
how what sort of questions did you encounter during the interview were they were there some clinical sort of orientated ones based on sort of vascular presentations like a diabetic foot or and were there some dilemma based questions like how do you deal with a a patient with an aneurysm who's not fit for repair yeah. um what sort of how did, how would you sort of broadly sort of categorize the questions you encountered something that somebody said to me prior to the interview which is really interesting he said they don't really care about whether you know anything about vascular surgery. They just want to, because they, the, the board believes that they can teach you all the things you need to know about vascular surgery. They care about your decision-making and how you think about things, um, which was something that I carried with me into it. So I think that there was like one, and, and traditionally, as I understand it, there's always been one station that's kind of referred to as the clinical station. Um, and I have to be honest, every, every interview that I'd ever seen, that was the easiest station. Um, and it's generally, you know, have a look at this, what is this, or, you know, take a history about this or, you know, something like pretty straightforward to do with vascular. Um, and my understanding is that pretty much everyone does pretty well in those stations. And then the other five are typically kind of um, theoretical um, uh, kind of um it kind of elaborations on the your consultant is drunk but i guess that it's it's a bit more of a elaborate um uh, elaborate kind of hypothetical situation and one thing that i found that vascular did compared to other specialties is it's not as black and white the theoretical situations and so you know a lot of the gen surge practice stems are your consultant is drunk, whereas the vascular ones are more like, you think your consultant is making an, an error in judgment, but you can't quite be sure that maybe they're drunk, but maybe they're not, that maybe this is happening, but maybe they're not um, uh, kind of things. And so there's a lot more to unpack to them, but they were mainly kind of um, uh, hypothetical situations. And I, I think, to be honest, I didn't really practice much for the um, actual vascular station because that's what you do every day. And if you you know, in, in your job, seeing lots of patients and you've done enough vascular surgery, you really should be okay with that station. Um, and I have to say that was my experience on the day. The clinical station was a breeze. The other stations were the ones that were kind of tricky. Yeah, I think, I think Tom, you've summed it up well, which is if you're doing your day job and you're doing it well, the interview becomes a reflection of your day job and um, you transition those skills that you see day in, day out with your colleagues and your consultants into the interview itself. And I think that's that's what discerns you from uh, everyone else in terms of being a successful candidate. So, Tom, obviously um, there are a lot of uh, uh, potential trainees out there who are unaccredited registrars and keen to go from unaccredited to accredited. What do you think were the major uh, shifts that you noticed in changing roles, perhaps in day-to-day work or... Um, um, perceived responsibilities. Yeah, I think the biggest shift actually I noticed was probably in the last six months last year after I found out I got on because um, I guess some people's attitude towards you changes from, oh, yeah, like you could probably do this to you need to know how to do this. And so, you know, suddenly it's not like, oh, do you want to have a go at this EVA? It's like you need to know how to do this EVA. You need to know how to do this BKA. You need to know how to do you know, the top end of FM pop. And so people really start taking a, a really good interest in, in making sure you're training it, they're training you. And and certainly, you know, my the Alfred was fantastic to me as a, as an unaccredited registrar. But I think 
um, once you're actually on the program, people's attitude to you, whether that's a subconscious thing, just suddenly changes. And I guess the other thing is, is that suddenly this becomes, you know, real. Um, and, you know, you go, well, unless I, you know, extraordinarily stuff up or don't study enough for my exams and, and fail them a whole lot of times, then, you know, in five years I'll become a vascular surgeon. And so, um, you know, that starts to hit home and, and you start to, I guess, you know, even more so take take your career seriously. Um, I've had an interesting experience this year in that, you know, I've had to move interstate for the first time and that's, you know, I've lived my entire life in Melbourne or, or 27 years of it up until now in Melbourne and so that's, you know, been a big thing for me um, and I've really enjoyed my time in Hobart and I've had a, a really great time working in a different hospital um, the other thing that I've done is that I've gone to a unit where I'm the only registrar. So I am the most senior um, trainee and, and to some extent the most senior vascular person in the hospital at some stages. And so um, that's been a really rewarding experience, but also um, you find that a lot of people are really reliant on you. And, um, you know, I guess it's a rewarding thing where, you know, you really do run the vascular service in some ways. I mean, obviously we have consultant oversight and, and we wouldn't be able to do anything without them, but, um, you know, you feel like you're the, the person on the ground who's in charge day to day. And so that's a really rewarding experience. And, and you know, I feel like I'm really involved with, with patient care and, and it's really nice to see patients that you admit operate on and then, you know, see discharged and, and, um, you know, then follow up in the clinic. And, um, I think that, you know, the more senior you become, the more you become in all involved in all of those aspects. Whereas sometimes, as an unaccredited registrar, you're more involved in the the admission and the discharge, and you know, you're there sewing up skin or something as part of the operation. But I think, you know, seeing patients that you've personally operated on, you know, six weeks down the track, and they're doing really well, and they're out of hospital, and they're happy, is is a something that's really rewarding and something that I've enjoyed. Um, you know, my first little time down here in Hobart. That's great, Tom. Sort of, uh, I guess, probably Yogi. I sort of uh, hearing that sort of reminds me as a consultant not to get, uh, not to forget, you know, the little victories and uh, get um, not complacent, but uh, you know, not forget, you know, the sort of the sort of important role that we sometimes have, and um, not to take it for granted. Yeah. Look, I think. Um... We, in our roles as, as sort of, you know, it's funny, Tom, because in some ways we, Sam and I have recently transitioned from being trainees to then stepping into consultant roles and you find your perspective on these things change and what you see as being fundamentally important and it also shifts. But um, it's, it's very refreshing to hear um, sort of your ov- overview of what, what's been important for you, especially as you've gone into your first year and, you know, um, unlike Sam, I, I moved every year of training. And so, you know, the whole struggle of moving from a home state to a new site is both is both stressful, but also the planning, what's involved, finding a place to live, all of that is, is it can get to you. And I think um, going back to a comment that you made early on in, in this discussion, I think part of training not only is resilience in your own ability to deal with the pathology but i think part of it is also dealing with the emotional side of it which is continually shifting and moving away from your family and loved ones uh you know to progress your career and um and i think that's 
probably not well described, but um, is is fundamental in terms of what you do. And um, and I think uh, you've you've very nicely put that together. So thank you, Tom. I think Tom's more mourning the loss of his favourite cycling track, but more than moving uh, away from his family. Funny, funny, beautiful, uh, <laughs> beautiful uh, mountains in Hobart, but there's no um uh black seal for me to hunt down on the road to frankston anymore unfortunately he's, <laughs> he's still out of the building <laughs> working away um tom i'll give you the one i'll give you the one piece of advice that um we sam and i both got probably when we were in our third year of training which is once you get onto training you will succeed you will get there mm. Uh, despite despite all the challenges that you think are ahead of you, um, you will make it out the other end. Um, the question will always be, what's the collateral associated with it? But um, you will survive. Mm. No, I've, I've loved being Hobart. So uh, it's a great lifestyle. And if there's any budding trainees that are living listening to this, I would I would strongly recommend preferencing coming down here. Uh, it's a fantastic lifestyle. Everyone in Tasmania smokes. Everyone in Tasmania has vascular disease. You'll get to operate on a billion people um, and you'll have a, a really good time. And I've had a, a certainly a great time down here doing it. Maybe, Tom, uh, just one last question. Uh, maybe as a final piece of motivation for anyone about to sit the interview, what was it like getting the uh, the letter or the email? Uh, yeah, uh, it's it's pretty incredible feeling. You, um, I, remember, I remember distinctly where I was. I was in... Uh, the Alfred Centre Theatre One, about to do a primary open veins with Bazu, who's our head of unit. And I was sitting there waiting for the anaesthetist, the anaesthetist being slow or something, waiting to put our patient to sleep. And I'm sitting there scrolling on my phone, absentmindedly waiting for this case to happen. And this email flicks up and I just, you know, without some thought, just open it and says, oh, congratulations, you got on. And I go, oh, wow, got on. And Bazu, I think, was standing next to me, goes, what? I said, yeah, I got on to training. <laughs> took my hand and... Uh, I think we went on to do the case and I think I texted my dad and he called me about five times so I was scrubbed doing this this vein case call, but it's yeah did you call you a loser yeah yeah well, he's, he's still reminded me that he was better at vascular surgery than I was but uh um no it's it's a really nice feeling and you know lots of lots of really supportive people and I guess I've been pretty fortunate to have had a lot of kind of nice senior registrars over the time who've looked after me who are you know, glad to hear that I got on. So yeah, it was yep. it was really nice. It was a definitely a moment I, I won't forget. I'm surprised Buster didn't say, "Yeah, I know." Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Look, I was I, I was just I was just going to say that Tom because the the letter that Sam and I got was was signed by um, Mr. Buster David, and so um, he's gone through the process of being um, sort of responsible for the selection of. Of, uh, well, Sam blames him for me because I really like femtop mm. bypasses, and and he was my interviewer. And when he asked me why do I want to do vascular surgery, I said I love femtop bypasses. Now, years on, I worked for him, and then uh, I subsequently asked him, "Do you remember that I, I, I answered the question with I really like femtop bypasses?" To which he said, "I can't believe we let you on." So the the summary of the story is, I can't, you know. Yes, he might have been surprised, but genuinely, he would have been ecstatic for you. And uh, and Tom, I think, um, you know, Sam and I were, the, you know, we went through similar experiences. Just the range of emotions and everyone trying to 
celebrate and congratulate you. And and Tom, as you start this journey, I guess we extend our very warm congratulations to you, especially as you take on your your next steps forward in training. Oh, thanks, Scott. Can't believe Vazu is responsible for getting Sam Farrow onto the program and passing his fellowship. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> that man's got a lot to answer for the future of Victorian Aspen <laughs> surgery. Uh. All right. Well, thanks, Tom. Uh, maybe we'll leave it there and uh, hopefully uh, we'll get you back on another day. Sounds good. <laughs> <laughs>